We've been working our way through this chapter and dealing with some of the specific events that Luke and the other uh, synoptic gospel writers, Matthew and Mark, bring to our attention by way of Jesus demonstrating his power and authority over various kinds of problems. Last time, uh, two weeks ago, we looked at the fact that he stilled a raging storm at sea, commanded the wind and the waves, and the disciples were pretty shocked at that. And now in verse 26, we discover that he gets to the other side of the lake and encounters a different kind of storm, not a storm involving the element, but a storm involving a man who is under the control and influence of demonic spirits. And this guy is a wreck. He's living in the tombs. He's not wearing any clothes. He's acting like a wild maniac. Uh, It's just amazing to imagine the depths to which human beings can descend. And this man certainly has uh, gone uh, the gamut, so to speak. Um, He's unable to be controlled. They can't tie him down. They can't hold him down. They can't keep him in town. They can't even keep clothes on him. And uh, he's just a wild man, uh, a man living in a place of death. That's a very uh, kind of an odd uh, sort of uh, juxtaposition of life and and the events surrounding it. Um, I'm going to ask you to follow along as I read, beginning uh, in verse 26 from the New American Standard Bible, so that we get the story fixed in our mind, and then we're going to come back and talk about it in some detail. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee, and when he came out onto the land, he being Jesus, he was met by a man from the city who was possessed with demons and who had not put on any clothing for a long time and was not living in a house but in the tombs. Seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, What business do we have to do with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had seized him many times. And he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard, and yet he would break his bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. They were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. Now there was a herd of many swine feeding there on the mountain, and the demons implored him to permit them to enter the swine. And he gave them permission, and the demons came out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they ran away and reported it in the city and out in the country. The people went to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they became frightened. Those who had seen it reported to them how the man who was demonized had been made well. And all the people of the country of the Gerasenes and the surrounding district asked him to leave them, for they were gripped with great fear and he got into a boat and returned but the man from whom the demons had gone out was begging him that he might accompany him but he sent him away saying return to your house 
and describe what great things God has done for you. So he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. You know, as as I was uh, working on the development of uh, this message and trying to determine how much to to bring, um, there's just way too much here uh, for one message. Uh, In fact, there's way too much here for the next 25 minutes of what I plan to say, but anyway, that's, that's another story. But there's way too much here, and as I began to look at it, I realized I don't particularly think it's helpful, nor are you probably interested in a lot of the textual analysis of the passage. It's interesting that Matthew, Mark, and Luke record and report this incident, but Matthew says there were two demoniacs, uh, two people with demons. And you say, okay, where did Matthew get another guy? And then uh, one of the Gospels says the Gadarenes, the other one says the Gerasenes. Those were two regions on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. But they did come together and border one another. And uh, the people who are critical of Scripture began to pick through this with a fine-toothed comb, trying to find all the fault and the problems. And uh, I hope that, that you are at a place by now in your faith where you can leave the problems with God. And the reason I say that is, this occupies a very few verses in an event that took a number of hours. I mean, by the time they got on the lake, got out of the boat, met the man, the deliverance occurred, the swine ran into the sea, the herdsmen went to town, came back from town. Town was a little ways away, no matter which town it was, it was a ways And by the time all that happened, a number of hours had gone by, and you could really write a a minor dissertation on all of the events that transpired in this number of hours, and yet we only have 20 or so verses. It's not possible to pack everything in that all of the disciples saw. And the confidence that I have is that... um, they all report accurately what they had seen as they are guided by the Holy Spirit to record the events of this story. And we simply don't know the details that fill in the difference. Um, there's, just, there's a lot of stuff missing when you bring a synopsis of an event. And uh, the scripture says all scripture is inspired by God and profitable uh, for doctrine, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness the man of God may be adequate, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And really that's the essence of what we're after. Lord, what do you want to say to me from this passage? What is the teaching here? There are some other things that are kind of puzzling. Why did Jesus allow the demons to go into the herd of swine? And why did the economy of at least those herdsmen become destroyed in the lake? And I'll tell you, I don't have a very good answer for that. Some of the commentators uh, say, well, you know, these were unclean animals. Well, if you were a Jew, they were. But if you were a Gentile, I think you'd have a little different attitude about that. And uh, that was, uh, you know, their herd of swine. And so that's, uh, to me, that's not a very satisfying answer. So uh, we could spend a lot of time running those, uh, you know, running those trails and not gain a lot of benefit from doing so, but if those things trouble you, I'll be happy to sit down 
and have a longer conversation with you. What I really want to do is focus this morning on the practical application of the passage. What is going on here, and what does it have to do with me? How does it affect me today? And that's the essence of it. When people look back on these kinds of events, there are two people who look at the scriptures. There are liberals who basically um, have all kind of unbelief surrounding the Bible and want to do nothing but fault find. And there are literalists who look at the scriptures and say, well, I believe that's, uh, that's exactly true. I think that's just exactly the way it happened. However... Many times today we find that biblical literalists, people who take the Bible for what it is, is the Word of God, functionally fail to believe it in terms of living today. The question arises, what do we do with all of the discussion of demons in the first century and in the time of Christ? Liberal interpreters look at that and they say, when they're being uh, generous, they say, well, Jesus accommodated himself to that period of time. What they mean is that Jesus really knew better. He knew that there weren't any demons. He knew that people don't have demon problems. He knew that people have psychological problems. They have neurophysiological disorders that affect their behavior. He knew that it was biochemistry that was the problem, but because the people of his day couldn't possibly understand all of the ramifications of an advanced culture, um, he accommodated himself to their primitive mentality. And he allowed himself to use terminology that they could understand. Of course, that makes Jesus uh, a, a, a bit of a deceiver because he was playing along with something that he knew was not in fact true. And so the literalists say, no, we don't buy that. We think that Jesus uh, recognized that there were demonic spirits, but we think one of the reasons why we have more encounters with demons in the time of Christ than we do today is because he was physically present. Here's the Son of God physically present on the planet, and he provoked demonic kind of activity. By, by his very presence, people, um, you know, the demons were reacting to him. And now that he is gone, we don't have so many problems like that. Or some of them say, uh, in, in a similar vein, um, demons uh, exist in primitive cultures that are involved in idol worship and demon worship and things like that. Of course, that doesn't answer the problem of these Jewish, not this story, but in other stories where there were good Jews who were not idol worshipers and who were following the true God and were not involved in demon worship. It doesn't explain how they had demonic problems. But anyway, they say demons exist in primitive cultures where people are deliberately worshiping idols or, or demonic kind of activity and behavior. But in the Western world, in the advanced cultures and civilizations, we don't have problems with demons. Um, in fact, the kind of difficulties that we have today are largely psychological and uh, you know, psychiatric, and, and we understand a whole lot more about it. And so we don't have these troubles uh, in the West. I don't know if demons recognize national boundaries, by the way. But anyway, 
Um, that's, that's the perception of uh, those particular individuals. The problem is, is that you can even talk to Christian counselors today who have been trained in conservative schools and seminaries, and when you talk to them about their mindset on this subject, um, they will tell you, well, demons might exist, yeah, but we know basically people have psychological problems. They have chemical imbalances. They have these kinds of issues that are going on, and uh, we need to treat them that way in a far more sophisticated sense. In fact, we know that most of the psychological problems people suffer with are biological in nature. Their, their foundation lies in the bad chemistry of their bodies, and we need to give them the right medication, and that will help them, and we need to give them some counseling for coping techniques and those kinds of things. And some people do have uh, purely psychological problems where they suffer from uh, poor adjustment or poor coping techniques, and we need to give them counseling to know how to better handle their environment or their home life or their relationships or whatever. But demons are not uh, big on the list of problems that people face. Friends, um, none of those things are true. <laughs> we have uh, what we have here as we kind of distill down the truth and we look at the Bible in a very literal sense is that Jesus recognized there were demonic problems. And demons know no boundaries. They dealt with people then the same way they deal now. And one of the tricks of the devil is to make us believe he doesn't exist. In fact, that's his best trick when he can do a disappearing act and hide behind something that we don't believe is diabolic in nature. As a consequence, we never get to the root of the problem. What is required for us to come and deal with these kinds of issues that people have is discernment, spiritual discernment, because people have physical problems that are purely physical. You can take blood pressure medicine, beta blockers in particular, that cross the blood-brain barrier and will cause you to be depressed. There's a physical problem, a blood pressure problem, that is being treated with a blood pressure medication that has an emotional side effect. People have physical problems. People also have psychological problems. People do have learned coping techniques that are poor. People have crises and traumas that happen in their life that leave them uh, wounded in their spirit. People struggle with things emotionally and mentally. And people have demons. And they have yielded their lives over in ways that have allowed demonic spirits to have influence in their lives. And so what is really required when we are seeking a cure is that we have a physician that has the kind of discernment to sort out the physical, the psychological, emotional, and the spiritual and also understand the delicate interplay between them all. And I don't know too many doctors that have that kind of wisdom. 
In fact, I only know one. And his name is Jesus. And that's why the Bible says, Is there any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick. We are encouraged in Scripture when we have difficulties in our lives to come and make it a matter of prayer and seek Dr. Jesus. He is the one that has the answer to every kind of problem. And when we seek him, he may say to us, uh, you need to go see the doctor, the, the one that's practicing over here in the building. Uh, or you may need to um, have someone counsel with you and, and teach you the scripture so that you can respond to life appropriately. Or you may need to get some people together and pray for you because you've given yourself over and you need to be delivered of the bondage that you're in. We need to recognize that the Scripture teaches us in a transcendent way that covers all time and all cultures that demons are a reality and they're a problem just as much today in the West as they ever were in the Middle East in the first century, or the heart of darkness in Africa in the last century, or uh, wherever. In fact, the Scripture says, we do not struggle against flesh and blood. The problems that we fight and wrestle with are not against people, but we are wrestling with principalities and powers and spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly realms, therefore, take on the whole armor of God that you can stand in the evil day. And having done everything, stand firm. Clothe with that armor. And, and Paul goes into great lengths to tell us what that armor is. Because there are demons in the world today. Well, what is the nature of this guy's problem? And how do people end up with demonic problems. One of the things that we have to get very straight is the terminology, and it's unfortunate that the King James translation of the Bible introduced a term that has been handed down that is not a biblical term. And that term is possession. It's never used in Scripture. It's an inappropriate term because it leads us to wrong conclusions. I hear people all the time say Christians cannot be demon-possessed because they are already possessed by God. Well, if you put it like that, I suppose there could be some truth to it, but that's not a biblical term. And I'm not sure that it's even appropriate to speak of being possessed by God. If you're yielded to God and filled with His Spirit, He is influencing your life and you have given Him uh, the, the invitation to direct your steps. But quite honestly, you can rescind that at any time, sad to say. I guess it's not sad to say, but God doesn't turn us into robots and make us follow Him. So we're never possessed by Him. Nor are we ever possessed by demons. We are influenced, but not 
totally under their control and dominion. You notice it's interesting that in this passage of Scripture, Luke does not tell us the story in specific chronological order. He's a great storyteller. He, he takes us in. He, he brings us to this encounter that Jesus is having with this man. That's kind of how the story opens. But then he tells us, for the man had come to Jesus. Great advice. But don't you know when the demons shouted out of him and said, uh, who, who are you? What, have we, what do we have to do with you, thou Son of God, the Son of the Most High God? Have you come to torment us before the time? Don't you know that if the demons had 100% control of this guy, they'd have been running the other direction? This man came to Jesus. He sought him out when he landed on the shore. And we look at the whole story and we realize that he was seeking help in spite of the great resistance that was going on. When the gospel message comes to us in the power of the Holy Spirit, whether it's for the first time in salvation or whether it's to deal with us regarding our spiritual journey and our development and, and we're confronted with a new truth, the Holy Spirit always invites us. He opens our eyes. He releases our will. He gives us faith to believe. We have a choice. We can say no to God. Or we can say yes. We can also, in the presence of the message of deliverance, say no to demons and seek the Lord and the help that He offers. We tend to think of being filled by the Holy Spirit like water in a glass. We tend to think of it in spatial terminology as if we are an empty glass and the Holy Spirit is being poured into us like water. And if we're full, then we're filled with the Holy Spirit. But Paul gives the lie to that uh, imagery in Ephesians chapter 5 when he says, Do not be drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be Filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. He's telling us that there is a correlation between what alcohol does and what the Holy Spirit does. And the correlation is not the fact that you drink a liquid into your stomach. <laughs> it's that if the liquid happens to be alcohol and you drink it into your stomach... It gets in your bloodstream and begins to have an influence in your life. It influences your coordination. It influences your judgment. It disinhibits your normal social reserve. It influences you in ways that kind of direct your behavior. And what Paul is saying is, allow the Holy Spirit to fill you like the alcohol does. To influence you, not to fill you up like water in a glass, but to permeate your thinking and your choosing and your willing and your feeling and, 
and, and to be a, a, an impetus in your life to move in the direction of God's ways. In the same way, people can be influenced by demons. And the scripture only uses two terms to refer to that behavior. It either says a person is demonized or they have a demon. If a person is demonized or has a demon, that spirit, or in this case, multiples, spirits, gain influence in the life in certain realms. And the question immediately becomes, how do demons gain influence in my life? Well, they will not jump on your back as you walk down the street like a bee coming out of a flower and stinging you. They don't do that. In fact, I can pretty safely say that you will be completely free from being demonized if you're just walking through the park. There could be some exceptions to that. I have to be careful with that. Um, but the reality is, is that they get in because you let them in through sin. Sin that is often repeated. Sin that is embraced. The enemy comes to us with an appeal. And he suggests to us attractive things. And we say, yeah. And then he brings them back again. And we go, yeah. And then he brings them back again. And then eventually we come to a place where we're being reeled in. And then one day we wake up to a startling reality. This thing has a hold of me now. I don't have a hold of it. It has a hold of me. And I don't like it. And it's messing up my life. And I really want to get rid of it. And it doesn't want to go away. And that is in essence how demonic spirits gain influence in our lives. We allow them to have a place of influence. Because we yield to the temptations repeatedly. Some temptations typically take more than a few exposures. If you just happen to land on a porn site, surfing the web for something else, you're not probably going to get terribly affected by that. Some of you are wired in such a way that you have a harder time getting the images out of your mind than others. But, but if you keep going back to porn sites because you want to be there, then you may wake up one day and find that it has a hold on you. And every time you sit down at the computer, you can't help yourself. And then you may find that you're putting in your credit cards to get more than you can get free. 
And then you may find that one day the IT guy from your corporation knocks on your door and with him is the head of your department and a pink slip and you've been fired because you've been using the corporate computer to pursue a lustful indulgence that has such a hold on your life you can no longer behave appropriately. It now controls your life. Very probably you have demonic influence in the realm of lust and pornography. Very probably. We have a tendency to think in those kinds of terms, though, and we don't think in other terms. We don't think about things like um, lying. Some people make such a habit of lying, they get to the point where they don't know the truth themselves anymore. Lies just roll off their tongue even when they don't have to lie. They get to the point that they lie so much they can't even remember what they say, but they believe most of what they've reported. And anybody that's got any sense that listens to them after a while realizes they can never be trusted. And they've given themselves over to an area. The devil's a liar and the father of lies from the beginning. That's one of his chief trump cards. Or someone excuses their anger and says, well, you know, that's just my heritage, or that's just my bloodline, or I'm just wired that way, I can't help that. And then one day, rage begins to control their lives, and then, much to their surprise, in a fit of rage and anger years down the road, they do something in traffic they never dreamed they would do. Or even worse, in a fit of anger and rage, they reach in a drawer and pull out a knife or they go in a closet and get a gun and when they come to their senses, someone they love is lying dead at their feet. And they don't know how they got there. But it's because they yielded to something over and over and over until it had control of them. Listen, the devil is not your friend. Uh, you, You should know that, but in case you didn't, he has one mission. He wants to ruin you. He wants to destroy you. And that's why Paul gives the admonition very clearly in Ephesians 4.27 when he says, Do not give him a place in your life. Don't give him a place of influence. Don't let him attach to you. Don't give him that purchase of influence in your life in a realm that will control you because you may find yourself living in the cemetery without any clothes on, running crazy mad like a lunatic. And you don't know how you got there. And your problem is not psychological, it's demonic. And you need deliverance, not a drug. Boy, I could go off on a trail there. We have a tendency to drug people up so they'll behave instead of solving their problem so they'll be cured. Jesus has a very different answer. So the question is, and I started in that direction, can Christians have demons? And the answer is, why, of course they can. All you have to do, you're the the slave of the master you obey. 
All you have to do is give an area of your life over to someone else's influence for a long enough period of time until you're in bondage. The Holy Spirit never enslaves us. But He does want us to invite Him to influence and guide us. And if we don't give our lives to Him, someone else is going to want to take His place. And if you give it over sufficiently enough, eventually you'll find yourself with attachments. They don't control you and own you like you have been bought with a price. God owns you. But because of your stubborn resistance, you have left the door open for the enemy to come into your life and he is playing havoc with you. Notice that the demonized man came to Jesus and notice that when um, the townspeople came to see what was going on, they found a very curious thing. He was clothed in his right mind, sitting at the feet of Jesus, beside Jesus, having a conversation. He was completely normal. We can assume that <clears throat> some of the disciples, one of the boats had some extra clothes, another tunic or something like that. It's not very far-fetched. Come on. And now this man is willing to be appropriately dressed. And he is sitting with Jesus with absolute devotion. I know that. Because when the townspeople say to Jesus, please, we don't know what to do with you. Would you just leave? The man says, I want to go with you. I want to follow you. I want to be one of your disciples. I want to have these conversations, Lord, forever. I just like this. The same solution today is available. If you find that in your life somewhere you have given over to the powers of darkness and they have a hold on you, the way to deliverance and freedom is just like this man. Come to Jesus and ask Him to set you free. And then devote yourself to Him with all of your heart and with all of your mind and with all of your soul, with all of your strength. Years ago, when I was involved in doing deliverance work with individuals, and they would, um, you know, I spent a lot of time talking to demons, and I didn't get anywhere. Well, we got places, but how can you believe a demon, Really? They're liars. And not only that, I found that people would get free and they were so happy. And then a few months or a year later, they'd be back in the same soup. <clears throat> they'd be back in the same problem. And the reason was because as time went along, I began to, to understand that the repentance was not thorough. And what I mean by that is, this guy might have been very happy if Jesus had just cleaned him up, up enough to get back in society. 
You know, nobody wants to run around naked in the tombs. Good grief. You know, clean me up enough to make me reintegrate. But let's not get radical, you know. And many people come to Jesus and they say, I, I don't like bondage. I just lost my job because I couldn't stay off the porn in the computer. So would you clean me up enough so I can keep a job? I'll just look at the porn at night. Jesus doesn't play that way. What he wants is thorough repentance. He wants you to turn. He wants you to put, turn your back on whatever the issue was that got you into the mess and bring you fully to him with all of your heart and with all of your mind and with all of your soul, with all of your strength. And Jesus' work is thorough. I'm amazed that he was willing to send this guy right back to town. You know, we'd have said, oh man, he's only been a Christian like six hours. What are we going to do with him? We can't turn him loose. Yeah, come on with us, you know. And Jesus said, no, I want you to go back to town and I want you to tell the people what great things God has done for you. And friends, Jesus is able to keep his own. I know and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I've committed to him against that day. Jesus had perfect confidence that the Holy Spirit could keep this man on the path. If, if I were going all the way into the book of Acts, we would find that the seeds were planted and the area is ripe for the gospel message. Jesus gave him a mission. It was only going to be a couple of years. And the evangelist would be there proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. And Jesus gave him a mission. Go back, go tell your people what I've done for you. There was no concern on the heart of Jesus that this guy was going to fall back into sin. Listen, when Jesus sets you free, you are free indeed. There's a mindset today that is completely erroneous and not biblical. It's the idea that you have to have the same sin as I do if we're going to understand each other. And then we've got to sit down together in little groups of like sins. And, 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 we, and we can only understand each other if we have exactly the same sin. And you can never say in your little group, I am free, I am no longer a whatever. You have to say, I'm still a whatever, but I just don't do it anymore. But I have to come to this group all the time or I'll do it again. That's not biblical. That's not biblical. Jesus sets you free. Don't insult him. If he's delivered you from alcohol, you're not an alcoholic. If he's delivered you from pornography, you're not a porn addict. If he's delivered you from drugs, you're not a drug addict. You're free. Celebrate your freedom. Focus your eyes on Jesus. Look to him. Recognize that he is the one who is able to deliver you right now. He can set you free. Now, should you come to church? <laughs> yes, you should. 
You should come to church. You should get in the Word. You should begin to have conversations with God. You should immerse yourself in the family of God to be around people that encourage you and stimulate you to love and good deeds and to be a part of His family. But even if that's not possible, like this demoniac, God is able to keep you. If the Son will set you free, you will be free indeed. And Jesus freed this man. And he was free, and he was clean, and he was whole, and he had been delivered. Are you in bondage this morning? Is there some grip on your life? Listen, friends, sin is sin. It's all a mess. And you don't have to have my sin for me to understand you. I'm a sinner saved by grace, and so are you. That's all you need to know. I don't care what habits or bondage or problems you've got. They're, they're all very similar in nature. Come to Jesus. Turn from your sin. Turn from your sin. Turn to Him. Ask Him to free you. Enable Him by His grace to drive the demonic influence away. Invite the Holy Spirit to fill that area of your life. Seek the fellowship of the saints. Get in the Word. Jesus will keep you. He will free you. And He will save you. And that goes for believers who are in trouble as well as unbelievers. Who need to meet Him the first time. He is the great physician, whatever your need is. Father, I thank you this morning that there is healing in the name of Jesus. That he is the great diagnostician. He knows exactly what the problem is. He knows the remedy. He knows how to cure us. And we can come to him with confidence. And I ask in Jesus' name this morning that we avail ourselves of the power and the glory and the majesty of Jesus Christ, who is willing to free us. Amen.